On the evening of that fir of the first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and sighed. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again, Jesus said, Peace be with you, as the Father has set, sent me. I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone his sins, they are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they will they are not forgiven. All right, so imagine with me for a minute that a group of people have self-isolated behind locked doors. Okay, they're sheltering at home because they have good reason to believe that venturing outside and especially encountering other people creates a significant health risk. So significant, it could actually kill them if things went the wrong direction. Now, I know this is hard to mentally picture, but just track with me for a moment. This group of people, they didn't know how long this threat would last. They didn't know exactly how dangerous it was out there. They were lacking information and data to make really good, informed decisions. Again, just, just hang with me for a second. And so they hunkered down, hiding out. They didn't venture far, but if they did, they certainly covered their faces with a mask. Now, as you all know by now, I'm, of course, talking about the disciples that were hiding in the upper room for three days um, after Jesus' crucifixion, but before they met um, him in his resurrection body. It's the passage that we just heard read. And that health risk was real. I mean, their leader, who they'd been following uh, for three years, had just been killed. Who's to say that it wouldn't happen to them, too, if they were picked up by the wrong folks? So they self-isolated. They sheltered at home. They covered their faces when they left to get groceries. Now, I actually hesitate a little bit to draw the similarities between their quarantine and our quarantine too tightly because the thing that held them in their self-imposed prison, it, it um, was not the love of other people or the kindness in protecting others during a pandemic or even the thoughtful obedience to you know, governmental agencies who are um, directing policies for their good. They, they were really, uh, they are, um, sorry, they're, those are all really good reasons for us to stay home right now, okay? So keep doing that. Uh, but for the disciples, the thing that held them in their isolation was really simple and really plain. It was their fear. See, they feared for their lives. I mean, they feared being associated with a convicted and executed criminal. They feared the shame that they would feel for abandoning their friend at the moment when he needed them the most. They feared what the rest of their lives would look like now that they had placed their bet on this traveling rabbi and by all appearances had lost that bet big. They were afraid. All right, but um, whatever reasons we have for staying home right now, we're we're afraid too. And I'm not talking about the coronavirus anymore. We can be done with that for a minute. I'm just talking about life. I had a seminary professor who was teaching a counseling class, and uh, she said something along the lines of this: 
I think everything we do, every sinful thing we do, can trace its root in the human heart to basically one of two things, either pride or fear. Now, when she said that, that sounded a bit simple, a bit reductionistic, but I think she might be right. We're we're so easily prideful people, and we're so easily fearful people, and so often those two things are happening at the same time. Henry Nouwen put this really well in the opening lines of his book called Life Science. Um, Let me just read a few sentences of this for us. He says, we are fearful people. The more people I come to know, the more I come to know people, the more I'm overwhelmed by the negative power of fear. It often seems that fear has invaded every part of our being to such a degree that we no longer know what a life without fear would look like. There always seems to be something to fear, something within us or around us, something close or far, something visible or invisible, something in ourselves or in others or in God. There never seems to be a totally fear-free moment. He goes on to say, a huge network of anxious questions surrounds us and begins to guide us, if, if not some, if not all, of our daily decisions. I mean, if you were to sit for a minute and were to be honest about your own fears, and we all have them, how would you put your anxious questions into words? I mean, what would you write down on paper if you were asked to write down your anxious questions? How will I pay for my kid's college? Did I say the wrong thing to that person? Did I, did I ruin a relationship? Did I embarrass myself at that party? Will life always be such a long haul drag? Will I ever find a person to love or a person that loves me? The default mode of the human heart is that our fears guide and navigate us through life. I mean, the disciples' fears guided them right into hiding. But what happens next in this story should have all of our full attention. We should be alert, ears up, eyes up, because these guys begin their evening in debilitating fear and they end their evening in world-changing, high-risk, bold, passionate mission, and they launch into this with joy, not with trepidation. This, This is the great commission scene in John's gospel where Jesus extends the same mission that defined his own life and death to his followers. In fact, Jesus hands over his mission so completely and he identifies his own work in the world in them so fully that he can even say, if you forgive the sins of any, they're forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it's withheld. We're going to talk about what that verse means in a minute because it's confusing. But for now, notice how complete the transformation is from verse 19 to 23. I mean, what could possibly have happened in between debilitating fear and world-changing mission? Put simply, a resurrection encounter happened in between those verses. They met face-to-face with a new kind of hope. They met person-to-person with a whole new kind of life. And that meeting it changed everything. It changed the trajectory of their lives, and it can change the trajectory of yours as well. I want to show you three things that happened to these followers during this encounter. And as we go, I want you to ask if you've also encountered the resurrected Jesus in these life-changing ways, the kind of meeting that can move us from a fear-guided life to a gospel mission-guided life. First thing we see is that they become convinced of the reality of Jesus' 
new resurrection life. So verses 19 and 20, Jesus came and stood among them. And he said to them, peace be with you. A a common greeting in the ancient Near East. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side where the scars from his resurrection would still have been visible. And then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Now, we won't spend too much time here because I'm actually going to drill down on this a little more next week when we look at Thomas's encounter with Jesus' resurrection life, when Jesus Jesus moves him from doubt to belief. But for now, just notice this. These guys, they weren't glad until they investigated the evidence, until they ran down the facts, and their eyes were opened to the totally new belief that one person had actually, in history, in fact, gone through death and come out the other side alive. All right, what made their hearts soften and and begin to sing with joy again was becoming convinced that this crazy thing actually happened, real time, a historical event, is what turned them from fear to being able to hear and receive a new mission for their life. And that really is the center of Christianity. I mean, if you want to know what the whole thing's about, it's about this right here. It's not that nothing else in the Bible matters, but everything else in the Bible only matters if this is true, if this actually happened. So do you think it happened? What do you say? Uh, Have you been convinced of this fact, this historical reality? This is the resurrection sort of a settled fact for you. Do you believe that one human being in the history of the real world, a human man who lived and walked and ate and talked just like you and I, um, was certifiably dead and is now alive again as a real human being? If not, like these disciples and like many, many others in history, you need to run that down. I mean, you need to go check out those facts because that's a world-changing claim that requires us to investigate and to respond You need to decide if this is a real story, the truth, or if it's just a good story to encourage us on our journey through life. Because believing the resurrection is the first step to everything. That's where the real gladness in life begins. But Jesus doesn't stop after they believe in this new life. He he starts there, but doesn't stop there. The next thing he does to totally transform the disciples' lives is he gives them a new mission, a, a new reason to get out of bed in the morning, a new purpose. Verse 21, Jesus says to them again, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so uh, even so I am now sending you. First of all, thing to notice here, Jesus repeats himself, doesn't he? He had just greeted them in verse 19 by saying, peace be with you. And now he turns right around again in verse 21 and he says, peace be with you again. Why? Is Jesus forgetting things? Is he like early onset Alzheimer's here? He's not merely saying hello again. This is actually a tip-off to the kind of mission his father sent him into the world to accomplish and the kind of mission that he is now extending to you. He's sending you into the world to extend. Peace throughout the Bible, it's much more than a greeting. It's even more than sort of the absence of conflict. Peace or shalom, it's this rich term that describes total human flourishing. It's the way things are supposed to be. It's people in proper relationship with God and people in proper relationship with each other and and even the world. Paul describes the heart of Jesus' mission this way in Ephesians 2. He says, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ. You're alienated 
from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. In other words, your life was defined by fracture and separation and brokenness and, and disengagement. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace. He's our shalom. There's a whole lot of threats to shalom in our world, but the single most devastating problem that all of us face is that we're alienated, separated from our creator, our king, the source of life because of our sin. But in Christ, in the peacemaker, we're brought near to God again. The peace of Jesus is our salvation. He heals those fractures. He mends a broken world. Peace with God, accomplished by the death and the resurrection of Jesus, is the very heart of the mission of Jesus. But Paul continues to build on this truth in another letter. In Colossians 1, he says, it's actually in Jesus that all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace again by the blood of his cross. So here we learn the peace that Jesus brings by his death and resurrection. It doesn't just heal our relationship with God. It's not just the vertical dimension that Jesus is is mending. He does that, and then he heals everything else, all things in this world. This is an expansive, holistic mission of shalom. Uh, Tim Keller put it like this. When we look at the whole scope of this storyline, we see clearly that Christianity is not only about getting one's individual sins forgiven so that we can go to heaven. That's an important means of God's salvation, but it's not the final end or even the purpose of it. The purpose of Jesus' coming to put, is to put the whole world right, to renew, restore creation, not to escape it. It's not just to bring personal forgiveness and peace, but also justice and shalom to the whole world. And this healing, uniting, bridge-building, reconciling peace that Jesus accomplished for the world during his mission is the same thing that he now passes on to his followers. Another way to put this, we can have a very clear understanding, and and many of us do, I, I know you guys, of the gospel of grace and what it will do for us in the future. It can be this rich hope that we have. It'll save us from judgment. It'll usher us into heaven by the sheer grace of God alone. We'll be saved. But we can have that belief deeply embedded in us and still not be very sure what the resurrection has to do with our lives today, like tomorrow, Monday morning right? At work or at home. You know, the stuff that actually makes up our everyday life. What does the resurrection mission of Jesus have to do with the hours that actually make up our days? Well, this isn't a comprehensive list at all, okay? But just to to get a taste, here are some projects of peace, some, some projects of shalom that we've been sent on by Jesus to get us thinking in the direction of this mission that he's sending his followers on in, in the world. Um, so, for example, students, okay? Anywhere from pre-K to grad school. As you learn, as you read, as you grow intellectually, this is redemptive work. This is the renewing and the expanding of your mind to better understand God's world, to, to bring your whole being in, more and more into conformity with the design of God's creation. So like a thoughtful, intelligent, reasoning, creative human life. 
So as you apply yourself to those endless math problems, right, and the book reports that come your way, you're, believe it or not, you're on an Easter mission, okay? You're on a resurrection track, um, bringing shalom to your little corner of the world that you um, can influence right now. For those of you who are in healthcare professions, this is a redemptive project in line with God's purposes for the world, restoring broken bodies, protecting us against threats and diseases, reviving us to health the way we were meant to be. For those of you involved in music and film and the arts, your creative projects and efforts, they tell stories that communicate God's truth about God's world. You can shape the narrative, the story that people are living in and help them resonate with the deep themes of grace and beauty and truth and redemption. You're spreading God's peace through your art. All of us have families, uh, no matter how put together your family is or not, no matter how loving and nurturing, all families are broken because all people are broken. And so all of us have the opportunity to be a force for peace in our family a force for showing and living grace. And for all Christians, at the, at the heart of the redemptive work that God is calling us into the world to do is the opportunity to share Jesus' offer of salvation with those around you. And this is where that kind of strange verse 23 comes in. If you forgive the sins of any, they're forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it's withheld. I mean, did you know you carried that kind of power? Uh, this can be a tricky verse, uh, but uh, another professor of mine, actually, D.A. Carson, explains it pretty well. He says, this is simply the result of preaching the gospel, of sharing the good news, which either brings people to repentant hearts as they hear of the ready and costly forgiveness of God, or it leaves them unresponsive to the offer of forgiveness, which is the gospel, so they're left in their sin. Jesus sends his followers into the world to share, to offer, to extend the forgiveness that he himself achieved. If they accept the message, they're forgiven, not on account of our words, but on account of the fact that our words point to Jesus. If they reject us, they're not rejecting us, but Christ in us. Because that's the real center of this new mission, is Jesus in us, continuing to spread the peace that he established in the world to more of the world. So last week we used this kind of image of combining colors to illustrate how the resurrection seals the gift of the gospel in our life. So without the resurrection, we live in a grayscale world, okay? Everything is, is just gray. But when we encounter Jesus' resurrection life, it's like the bright colors of his joy come flooding back into our lives. We're, we're, we can see for the first time. Spiritually, we're alive for the first time. But just like when you mix two colors, say blue and red, and you make purple, you, you can't go back in later and get the red back out, okay? It's, it's in there. It's not going anywhere, right? It's created a new thing, and you can't deconstruct it later. They're permanently sealed, so when you and I encounter Jesus's resurrection life in a life-changing way, he gets in us on a spiritually molecular level and all the gifts of his gospel are, are sealed in there permanently. It creates a new thing and there's no going back. Um, <clears throat> you can't separate them out. And so once that transaction happens, Jesus's followers now move through this grayscale world as a walking 
living sign, a witness, a demonstration that color is back. Okay, grayscale is not the end of the story. We didn't do anything to bring the color back, but we get to show it off, right? We, we get the honor of offering it and extending it and bringing it to new neighborhoods and schools and offices where we work. We get to live the kinds of lives that are intriguing and sometimes even compelling to those who can't yet see the beauty of the color that Jesus has restored to the world. This is a mission of representation, a mission of ambassadorship, a mission of embodying God's shalom to those who are separated from God, showing what it can look like for a normal old life to be permanently connected to a totally unique and abnormal and beautiful resurrection life. And this is exactly why encountering resurrection life of Jesus drives away fear as he redirects us on his mission. Because the things that we're anxious about, the things that we're afraid about, tend to be the things that we think we can control, right? Or manage. So we worry about money because managing a household budget is at least something I can wrap my mind around, right? So so I try to control it and I get anxious about it. Or worrying about my kids um, is normal because we have like one through five of them, you know, whatever the family is. And uh, that's a number I can at least count on one hand. Jesus drives out our fear. He drives that kind of fear out because his, uh, sorry, he, he drives our fear away with his resurrection presence by doing two things. And the first is by making our mission so enormous, so world-changing, so global and complete that we can't possibly accomplish it, right? I mean, he says, go in my name and extend the gifts of the gospel to every corner of the world. Bring my peace and hope and reconciliation and joy and love to everyone you meet and let it transform them, right? Be my hands and feet in a corrupt and broken world and fix it up. Bring the color back. Good luck. And we look over our shoulder trying to find the person he's actually talking to until we realize, oh, he means you want me to do that. He intends for me to go out and do that. So you can't be afraid of that plan for your life because you can't actually worry about it Because unless you're an insane narcissist, you don't believe you can even come close to managing or controlling that um, life. You can't fear this mission. You can only laugh at it. And that's actually a gift. But here's the other gift that drives away fear. God doesn't leave us alone to do this, but he empowers us with his very presence in us, his Holy Spirit working in us and through us. And this is the third thing we see in this resurrection encounter. Verse 22, when he had said this, Jesus breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. Receive the presence of God with you. Wherever you go, whatever I call you to do, I will be present with you, working in you and through you to change you and my world. When we're operating out of a sense of our own self-sufficiency and efficiency and productivity, when we rest the redemption project of God's expanding kingdom on our shoulders, we're crushed by the weight of it. But when we rely on the power of the Holy Spirit to work through us to accomplish what's pleasing to God in the world, then we're not living out of our own strength, but out of the power of God. My grace is sufficient for you. 
For my power is made perfect in weakness, not in strength. Therefore, I'll boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. You see the dynamic? God will be faithful to his promises, to to bring peace to his whole world. What God sent Jesus into the world to accomplish will be accomplished totally, completely, and finally. On the cross, and then in that stamp of victory that occurred three days later on Easter morning, God does not fail in bringing about the plans that he intends to accomplish. His, uh, His mission is never in question. It never has been. But here's what's interesting. He could bring it about any old way he wants to in the entire world. He could snap a finger and it would be done today. But for whatever reason, he has sovereignly decided to entrust the means by which he will bring about his global mission to his people, to his followers, to you and to me through the power of his spirit working in us. So the question is, do you accept the mission? Are you on board? The the end result is not in question. It never has been. The only question is, will you enjoy the honor and the delight and the sort of shocking, surprising laughter of being picked to extend God's peace to his whole creation? Will your life have true and lasting meaning because it's connected through the resurrection to the only eternal and meaningful life in the universe? Many of you may have already accepted Jesus into your life as your personal Savior. I want you to consider today whether you've accepted Jesus into your life as your personal sender, the the author of your life's mission. Has he sent you into the world on his behalf to extend his peace? That's the invite. I hope you take him up on it, because if you do, you are in for a ride. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for... um, the mission that you accomplished in this world. Thanks for redeeming and restoring and reconciling all things, for bringing peace through the blood that you shed on the cross and then sealing it into eternity through your resurrection. And it is a crazy thing that you extend that invitation, that that commission to us to pick up where you left off, working through us to extend the gifts of your gospel to more and more people, and more and more places. I pray that you show us the avenues to do that. I pray that we can take up that mission, that we feel sent by you into the world in our everyday relationships, in our everyday work, in the normal humdrum mundane life. Help us see our lives um, as an extension of your mission of love in this world. God, we ask these things in your name. Amen.